Hello and welcome to this short talk on an American writer, Howard Philip Lovecraft, or H.P. Lovecraft as he is more commonly known. My name is Stuart Lee, I'm a member of the English faculty at the University of Oxford and this podcast forms part of our series on fantasy literature. I want to use Lovecraft to tackle three questions. First, what should we include under the category of fantasy? Secondly, the accepted place of fantasy in the academy, by that I mean universities and, and literary courses and so on. And finally, critiquing fantasy, the concept of good, bad books. But first of all, a bit of biographical information. H.P. Lovecraft was born in 1890 and died in 1937. His relatively short life was spent mainly in Rhode Island and Providence area of New England. Although during his unsuccessful marriage, he also spent time in some of the seedier areas of New York City. His childhood was isolated, with an overly protective mother, and to all extent was quite lonely. His father was committed to asylum when Lovecraft was only three, and his mother also eventually later died in one when Lovecraft was a young man. It's worth noting also that his prosperity declined throughout his life, as did his health. So whilst he was brought up in relative comfort, the family finances worsened with the death of his grandfather. So Lovecraft's life has an overall sense of disappointment and struggle. Lovecraft once said that there were three parts to him. A love of the strange and fantastic, which we should come back to. A love of the ancient and permanent and a love of scientific logic. He was fascinated in geography, notably that of Antarctica, astronomy and geology, and even began a scientific gazette at the age of nine, albeit only a single sheet of paper. In terms of the ancient and permanent, we can perhaps include his desire for stability and ancestry. He saw himself very much as being of Anglo-Saxon stock in New England and was quite clearly an Anglophile. He would occasionally sign off his letters with God Save the Queen and he was mortified by the United States' reluctance to join Britain immediately at the outbreak of World War I. So to the first question, what is fantasy literature, or in particular, why would we include H.P. Lovecraft in this genre? Let us consider who Lovecraft himself noted as having influence on him. We could easily draw up a list of writers like Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Thomas Bullfinch, Edward Bulwer-Lytton, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, and Arthur Mackin. Indeed, Mackin's story, The Great God Pan, is cited directly in Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror from 1928. Now here we could say that these writers are mainly in the area of supernatural or ghost stories. But as has already been mentioned in other talks, there's clearly an intertwining between fantasy and the gothic and the supernatural. If we start to consider other influences that Lovecraft himself noted, we can perhaps see that we're moving back towards fantasy a bit more. Lovecraft was of a generation that read and absorbed Grimm's fairy tales, and more interestingly, the translation of the Arabian Nights, which may indeed have seeded one of his more famous character inventions, the Arab Al-Hazred. We know that Lovecraft also read Conan Doyle's The Lost World, translations of Ovid, and most importantly, he was greatly influenced by Lord Dunsany, the fantasy writer, who he even went to see lecture and cites directly in his story The Nameless City from 1921. 
All of this moves us back towards fantasy in a way maybe from the supernatural. Some of the writers mentioned also blur the boundaries between fantasy and the supernatural, such as Mackin or Poe, particularly with the latter where some of his stories are in this dreamlike world and never never land. Outside of reading, other things which may have influenced uh, Lovecraft are illustrations by the artist Gustave Doré. These accompanied editions of Paradise Lost and Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which Lovecraft saw as a boy. But it's true to say that when you start to read Lovecraft short stories, you are immediately taken into a world of tombs, crypts, derelict mansions, all the tropes of the Gothic or supernatural. And it would be hard to describe a story like The Terrible Old Man, written in 1920, as anything but a horror story where two crooks fall foul of the sinister old man. It's also important to note that for most writers of the 20th century, or certainly the early part of the 20th century, they never really used the term fantasy. C.S. Lewis or Tolkien may have considered themselves writing romances, for example. Lovecraft is, is, no, is not different at all. He, in turn, didn't use the word fantasy, but he liked to think of himself as writing what we might call weird fiction. If you wish to take this a bit further, you really need to engage with three of Lovecraft's essays. 1921, In Defence of Dagon, a collection of essays in response to criticism of his own stories. 1925 to 27, and, and later revised in 1933 to 34, his essay Supernatural Horror in Literature, which is a historic analysis of what he termed weird fiction. In this, he states four modern masters as Macken, Dunsany, Blackwood and M.R. James. And 1933, his notes on writing weird fiction, which emerged from what we call his commonplace books, which was a set of notes and plots on classic weird fiction and various tropes and motives. To Lovecraft, weird fiction was where nothing in the story actually contradicted natural law, even if things did not exist in reality, but instead supplemented it in ways not imagined as yet. As he said, he wanted to write stories at a level beyond the galling limitations of time and space and natural law, which forever imprison us and frustrate our curiosity about the infinite cosmic spaces beyond the radius of our sight and analysis, a quote taken from his notes on writing weird fiction. Roger Luckhurst, in his introduction to the world's classic series of Lovecraft stories, sees this almost as liminal fantasy, something that borders between reality and supernatural. The writer of weird fiction is the poet of twilight visions and childhood memories. So whilst Lovecraft may write of New England or the slums of New York as if they are real, underlying them are these sinister horrors which point to something older and far more darker. Most importantly, there are two clear reasons why we might wish to consider Lovecraft as a writer of fantasy literature. First, within his short stories is what Luckhurst termed a dense matrix of cross-references. They link back and forth. To give but a few examples, The Terrible Old Man, which I've already mentioned, is then alluded to in a tale written six years later, The Strange High House in the Mist. Characters such as Randolph Carter appear in multiple stories, such as The Statement of Randolph Carter from 1920, The Silver Key from 1926, The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath from 1927. 
Fictitious places, often based on real settings, play host to multiple stories, such as the Miskatonic University, Arkham, Kingsport, and so on. And most importantly, over time, we start to see the emergence of an underpinning mythology. If you wish to understand Lovecraft's mythology in his own words, you should really read The Call of Cthulhu and At the Mountains of Madness, two longer stories. In summary, the mythology paints an epic picture of a race of elder ones or old ones who colonized the earth in prehistory, building great but horrendous cities. These elder ones now permeate the modern day world either through dreams or summonings, or occasionally they just enter into the real world through various traps and fictions. Captured in ancient and entirely fictitious books such as the Necronomicon by the Abdul Alhazred character and repeated phrases like that is not dead which can eternal lie and with strange eons even death may die, we encounter creatures and gods such as Nyarlathotep, first appearing in a short story of that name in 1920, Azathoth and Cthulhu. All are seen as powerful and malevolent, and the underpinning message of Lovecraft's mythology is one of complete hopelessness and despair, as his human protagonists are merely warding off the inevitable and constantly becoming aware of the complete insignificance of man in the cosmic order. This mythology is so well established that after Lovecraft's death, other writers picked it up, such as August Derleth. Another influence on Lovecraft which we must include which moves me to the second point about the place of fantasy in academic and publishing, is what we call the dime novels or pulp magazines, which Lovecraft read and contributed to. To me, this points to a wider issue, I believe, in the acceptance of fantasy, certainly in the early part of the 20th century, where standard publishers and, and the academy dis, disavowed it and didn't wish to engage with it. So writers such as Lovecraft, the only route for them was to go through publications such as the dime novel or pulp magazines. Dime novels appeared in 1860 and usually about 130 pages long and the subject matter was basically throwaway adventures. Lovecraft read a lot of these, especially stories he's described as weird fiction and also the pulp magazines like All Star Magazine and Muncie Magazines. This led him to becoming heavily involved in what we call amateur journalism, where would-be writers would contribute short pieces for money to journals. You'd get a few dollars for a couple of thousand words, not enough to live on, but it did get your writing career started. And he began publishing in the pulp magazines United Amateur and Vagrant. Most famously was his long relationship with the most important of these, Weird Tales, which first appeared in 1923 and ran for 31 years. As well as writing in these magazines, of course, Lovecraft also read many stories of similar ilk. Before I move to a discussion of Lovecraft's style, just a quick note to say that Lovecraft also wrote poetry. In fact, he produced about 300 poems, all of which mimicked various styles. Joshi, a writer I will mention at the end, categorized these into occasional poetry, patriotic poetry, 18th century poor verse or rubbish, but he also notes there was an emergence of weird verse in 1917. So a poem like Fungi from Yuggoth, which comes in several parts, tells a typical Lovecraftian tale in verse, 
where there's the discovery of a rare book which includes tales of Nialathotep, Azathoth, and so on. Lovecraft himself recognised, though, that he was no poet. There was a weakness there. As he said, take the form away and nothing remains. I have no poetic ability. Finally, let us now turn our attention to Lovecraft's style. There are some excellent stories, it has to be said, such as The Call of Cthulhu in 1926, The Dunwich Horror 1928, At the Mountains of Madness 1931, The Shadow Over Innsmouth 1931 as well. And there are some very Dunsanian tales, almost mythic tales, which take us into these kind of dreamlike worlds, which sometimes defy criticism. For example, The Doom That Came to Sarnath in 1919, The Tree 1920, The Cats of Ulthar 1920, the White Ship, Calafias, 1920, The Quest of Irinon, 1921, The Other Gods, 1921, and The Dream Quest of the Unknown Cadath, 1927. But it has to be said that much of Lovecraft's other work is very formulaic. Now, this can be explained in part for the fact that he was writing mainly for the pulp magazines. The readers knew what they wanted, and Lovecraft had to deliver. Let us look at a standard Lovecraftian plot. Usually, they take place in a remote setting, often in New England, a wooded hollow, an isolated location, a cemetery. Or if he wants to venture further from New England, it might be in the Congo jungle, the bogland of a castle in Ireland, Exham Priory in England, derelict houses, and so on. The stories are often written in the first person. Of the 47 tales, published between 1927 and 1927, 30 are in the first person. They're usually narrated by someone who has witnessed something horrible happening to someone else. Again, examples like the statement of Randolph Carter, or From Beyond from 1920, or Hypnos from 1922. The protagonists at some point will go mad, or nearly mad. This is often due to their inability to come to terms with what they are seeing, the horror, the scale in terms of space and time, or the unimportance of human beings. There will often be a double time shift. The protagonist will read or be taken back to the 18th or 17th century, and then often even further back to the prehistory of the mythos. Dreams are used very frequently. They will reveal the ancient cities that often defy geometry. They'll be accompanied by weird lyric melody, chords, vibrations and harmonic ecstasies, such as in Beyond the Wall of Sleep, the Temple, the Moon Bog, the Festival. Finally, there is his style, what has been described as adjectivism. Edmund Wilson, the famous critic from the 1950s, notably said, the only real horror of most of these fictions is the horror of bad taste and bad art. This is perhaps going too far, but one can certainly see repetitions and weaknesses in Lovecraft's style. Everything, for example, is Eldritch, Stygian, Gibbous. For example, here are some of the quotes from some of his stories on the screen. And here you will see it's almost like an un a reluctance to describe what the protagonists are seeing. Uncouth sound as I could never hear again and survive. Visions so extravagant I cannot even relate them. To convey any idea of these monstrosities is impossible. 
the frightful vividness, the inconceivable, indescribable and unmentionable monstrosity. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal and detestable. Horrors beyond horrors. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy, such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force and cosmic order. Lovecraft was, of course, aware of this, and he parried it, parodies it to a degree in a story called The Unnameable, when the protagonist, a writer, is criticised by his friend. To quote, he added, My constant talk about unnameable and unmentionable things was a very puerile device, quite in keeping with my lowly standing as an author. I was too fond of ending my stories with sights or sounds which paralysed my hero's faculties and left them without courage, words or associations to tell what they experienced. What is less amusing, though, is the clear racism and class snobbery that runs through Lovecraft's writings. Beginning with a poem published in 1912, the title of which I cannot repeat, there was his belief that we could see that he was so that he could see a decline in civilization and values. He read Spengler's The Decline of the West and Grant's The Passing of the Great Race. To give some examples which we can repeat, he often depicts lowly peasants or people coming in, immigrants to the United States in very uh, negative terms. For example, here are some quotes, gave not the least impression of Caucasian blood, simple animals they wore, gently descending down the evolutionary scale. The skulls denoted nothing short of utter idiocy, cretinism or primitive semi-apedom and so on and so forth. Perhaps the most telling quote, the Teuton, is the summit of evolution, which sends a chill through us when we remember all the various theories and political ideologies that ran riot in Europe in the 1920s and, of course, the 1930s. So there we are, H.P. Lovecraft, a writer who evokes much criticism but much adulation across many readers of fantasy literature. And I'd like to just leave you here with a few books that you might wish to pursue if you want to explore Lovecraft further.